Welcome to Asking for a Friend with me, your host, Katrina Buffard. I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. And this podcast covers any and every topic relating to sex, intimacy, or relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. This season of Asking for a Friend is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. For a lovely little discount, stay tuned until the end of this episode. It has been scientifically proven that consistent mindfulness practice can actually improve your sex life. And so on the podcast today, I'm thrilled to be featuring the world's leading expert on the subject, Dr. Laurie Brotto. She's a clinical psychologist, best-selling author, and researcher based in British Columbia in Canada. And we really had the most wonderful, enlightening, and fascinating conversation about just how powerful this pretty easily accessible tool is to all of us overall and for our sexual experience. Lori, when I was attending the WAS conference in Mexico City in 2019 and I saw your name on the program, I think it was on the very first day at like eight o'clock in the morning. I I mean, apart from jet lag, I think I was up at three o'clock anyway. I was there. I was so interested in being in that front row and learning from you. I have read your book. I have followed your research. Mindfulness is such a big part of my practice. And I'm just so, so grateful that I get to have a conversation with you of all people today. Well, thank you. That's very kind. And and the pleasure is mine. So, I mean, I, I, I guess... There's so much to say, and we've got limited time to explore this vast topic, but a lot of people still are unsure of what mindfulness is. So I would love to just for us to just start this conversation by by talking a little bit about what it actually is, because I think there's so many misconceptions when it comes to the term, the practice and the meaning behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think most people might be familiar with the term meditation, which has existed for at least 3000 or 4000 years. When we think about meditation, um, we might conjure up an image of a person, you know, sitting in an uncomfortable position on the ground in lotus pose, perhaps with their uh, thumb and pointer finger together in their lap, eyes closed, deep in thought. And um, meditation indeed is a, is a component of traditional Buddhist practice and lifestyle. Mindfulness is, uh, I think we can probably describe it as a secularized version, a modern day application of meditation, where the essential elements of meditation are preserved, but they're delivered and practiced in a way that really is available to anyone at any time. So it is, um, it is secular, meaning that it does not depend on a person's particular religious affiliation, or their own personal philosophical beliefs. Um, And the instructions really boil down to present moment non-judgmental awareness. So what that means is that there's two real fundamental parts of of mindfulness. One is paying attention. And through the guided practices that we deliver, uh, we might invite a person to focus on certain body parts or on the breath, or maybe sounds or even thoughts. 
Um, so that's one essential component of mindfulness. It's, it is about attention training, but the second part is also really important and, and it speaks to how do we pay attention and we pay attention with heaps of acceptance and compassion and kindness to ourselves, And that's really important because many of us, maybe even most of us have a lot of judgments, maybe even a lot of self-judgments. We're very hard on ourselves. And so through our mindfulness practice, it's an opportunity to accept that we might find the mindfulness challenging. Our minds might get distracted many, many times. And when our minds do, we just gently escort the mind back onto the focus of the attention. So it's about attention training in a kind and compassionate way. And that's how we would define mindfulness. It's, I'm really glad that you broke that down in the, into those two kind of distinct areas of, of focus because so often when I speak to somebody who's not really heard about mindfulness before or has perhaps um, you know, a misconception about mindfulness, the, the kind of overriding understanding or belief is around being aware of what I'm thinking in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I'll always say to my clients, of course, you know, that that is important to recognize, be curious about and, and just just be aware of what you're thinking or where your mind is at. But actually, from my understanding, it's the reason. Well, sorry, from my understanding, the research shows us that it's the compassion you show towards yourself when mm-hmm. you notice you have drifted off or your attention is not on that present moment or that anchor, mm-hmm. that breath, that counting, that sound. It's what you do when you've gotten Mm -hmm. distracted that actually makes the biggest difference. Is that what you found? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And it's, it, um, it's interesting, the number of people who attend our groups, or maybe I work with one-on-one who say, oh, I tried mindfulness once. I just can't do it. Or I've never been able to do yoga. Um, And when you probe a little bit further, uh, folks describe exactly what you're saying, which is. Um, you know, I think that they might believe that mindfulness is about being so present and so focused that one never gets pulled away. And what we really want to um, think about and encourage is in those moments when our minds do wander, because our minds do wander, even folks with a lot who've clocked a lot of hours in mindfulness practice, it's in those moments when your mind wanders. That's an opportunity for mindfulness. That's grist for the mindfulness meal and, and our ability to say, oh, wow, my mind went here. Let me gent- gently bring it back to the present moment. I often use the analogy of uh, a puppy dog on a leash. And in the same way that with a brand new puppy that's on the leash, that puppy is very curious. It's going to go here. It's going to go there. And when the puppy takes off, as, as uh, the, the owner or the person holding the leash, we just gently tug, guide the puppy back. And we want to embody that same kind of kindness to our, to ourself and to our minds when our minds take off. Um, because increasingly, this is the nature of the mind. We mind wander. And with all of the advances and efficiencies in technology, which have made our lives a lot easier, the cost of that is that it has also promoted more of this multitasking and being in multiple places and mind wandering. So rather than um, believing that, you know, we just can't, we're not built to do mindfulness. We simply accept that this is the nature of the mind. And in that moment, when we catch ourselves, that is mindfulness. I love, I love, love that you said that. Um, 
and you normalizing how busy our minds are and how many of us think that we can multitask. I used to be one of those people and subsequently recognized that it's just, <laughs> it's just not possible in human nature yeah. to multitask or at least do anything of, uh, at a decent level. And I say to all my clients, I, I've been practicing mindfulness for many years. Sometimes I fall out of practice. Sometimes I fall back into practice. But when I'm practicing, there can be days my mind wanders endless times. And yeah. it takes a lot of practice and patience with yourself and compassion with yourself to bring yourself back gently to that mm -hmm. moment of awareness. And it's how you do that that matters. And I think there is this expectation people hold on to that it, it's, it's, it's just something that they should be able to do and it should mm -hmm. be easy. And my goodness, mindfulness is anything, but, but mm -hmm. anything, but easy. It's mm -hmm. so hard. I mean, from mm -hmm. your personal experience of practicing mindfulness, what have been some of the things that you've kind of been challenged with and you're thinking around, Oh, mm -hmm. I should be able to do this. It should be mm -hmm. easy. Any kind of thoughts that have been through your mind like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think your statement about it not being easy, but, I mean, the instructions are simple pay attention moment by moment, non-judgmentally. Essentially, those three brief statements capture the essence of what we're doing, um, but it's not easy. So although the instructions are simple, the practice is not easy. Um, I absolutely struggle with mind wandering like, like we all do. And so my own practice, I think over the years has really evolved more with a focus on the self-compassion practice, the kindness to myself practice, um, because I, I do tend to be hard on myself in general, set very high expectations um, and maybe um, do some braiding of myself when I don't meet those expectations. So mindfulness is actually a place where I can get some really good firsthand practice with skills that then help me in other facets of, of my own life. Um, so that does mean that when I notice in my life in general that I'm going through a period of more stress or feeling more tension or feeling more pressures on myself, certainly the last year of the pandemic and my, my very significant administrative load um, that I carry, um, I've been ramping up on my own self-compassion practice and have have been doing a lot more reading of Tara Brock than I have in the past and, and doing this, the uh, self-compassion mindfulness practices as well. So that's one of the things that I tend to do is I take a look at my life and take a, a bit of a barometer of my own emotions in general, and then adjust my own mindfulness practices accordingly. Mm, I mean, that in itself is, is moment by moment awareness of what you need at that time. That's mm -hmm. such, a, such a lovely example of actually just being aware of and being curious of where you're at emotionally and, and, and what it is in that moment at that stage of your life during a pandemic when you've got a lot of stuff on your plate that you're really needing to work on. And I think that's what I find so wonderful about mindfulness is there are different different ways in which you can approach this. We can do mindfulness for self-compassion. We can do mindfulness for eating. And of course, mindfulness for sex, right? So, mm. I mean, how did you bring the two together? What was your journey mm. in, in in bringing integrating these two, which I think, I mean, I would say very similar um, mm. kind of experiences, but I don't think somebody listening might think that. Yeah, so I had been doing um, research uh, on sexual health for a number of years throughout my graduate training. Um, and then during my um psychology residency. So I did a one-year residency. 
I was uh, also doing research with gynecologic cancer survivors, and I was primarily interested in their experiences following gynecologic surgery um, and the profound loss of arousal that these patients uh, described. So feelings of disconnect from their body's arousal, feeling a lack of a sense of self, um, even reporting that while engaging in sexual activity, they could feel touch, but that touch was not translated into pleasure for them anymore. And so it was almost as if the, the actual qualities, the sensual qualities of a touch were profoundly changed following um, gynecologic cancer treatment. And then in parallel with that research, in parallel, um, I was undergoing clinical training as part of my residency and was introduced to dialectical behavior therapy, which is a very uh, well-established and evidence-based behavioral treatment for individuals who really struggle with sense of self, having extremes of emotions, so high highs of emotions, followed by low lows of emotions, sometimes escalating between those emotions within a period of an hour. Um, and, uh, and what I learned through dialectical behavior therapy is that teaching individuals to tune in and ride out the waves of those emotions was far more effective than what they were typically doing, which was distracting, moving the mind somewhere else, many of them engaging in um, self-harm behavior as a way of, of coping with these extremes of emotion. And it just struck me that this, um, I had never heard of, of mindfulness before, but it, 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 um, it absolutely struck me that this practice of tuning in could be more effective than tuning out, than distraction. Um, and so through the, the clinical training that I was receiving, I began to adopt my own personal mindfulness practice because, of course, since I was delivering this treatment to patients, it was really important that I understood it myself, that I understood how it showed up in my own life. Um, and I think it was probably after about a month of um, adopting mindfulness in my own life that I just had a light bulb moment. And I, and I thought, wow. Um, the experiences of, of these individuals with these extremes of emotions and feeling disconnect in some ways is pretty similar to the gynecologic cancer survivors who talk about disconnect, loss, suffering, extremes of emotions between um, losing their feelings of arousal, but also simultaneous euphoria at being cancer survivors. Um, and I remember, I remember it to this day, uh, the, the day in 2002, when I walked into my then supervisor's office, Dr. Julia Hyman, and said, you know, what do you think about applying mindfulness to this population of cancer survivors who are, are you know, really suffering quite a bit with their loss of sexual response? Um, and she basically gave me the green light and said, go for it. <laughs> so it was a very experimental period of many months. And thankfully, I um, had access to, uh, you know, a, a group of, of cancer survivors who were willing to work with me through this. So we were literally teaching one another, the mindfulness um, protocols that were in existence at the time in 2002, we started to piece together um, the kind of framework for what a treatment might look like, a lot of experimentation on myself, um, with their permission, their experimentation, and my delivering mindfulness exercises to them. So that continued over the course of many, many months. 
and then evolved into uh, my postdoctoral research, what which was you know the first pilot study of mindfulness for addressing sexual concerns in cancer survivors. So I did that over 2003, 2004. Um, and the findings astounded me. Um, so three months of mindfulness practice among this group of survivors led to them not only self-reporting more feelings of arousal, more perception of physical sexual arousal during their sexual encounters, but when we then invited them into um, a, a controlled experimental situation with um, something we called a vaginal photoplethysmograph, which measures what happens in the body as um, individuals are exposed to erotic stimulation, lo and behold, after mindfulness, their bodies were showing a greater physical sexual response. So greater physical sexual response in the lab that matched what they were actually saying. Um, and I was just, you know, dumbfounded <laughs> that this totally experimental method, which had received um, at that point in, in 2002, quite a lot of empirical support for the treatment of chronic pain, increasing evidence for managing depression and anxiety. Um, and as I mentioned, borderline personality symptoms, but uh, that it had never been applied to, to sexuality before. And I do remember thinking, how has this not been applied to sexuality? I mean, when, when we think about when people describe their optimal sexual experiences, they talk about being so in the moment, so in tune, so in sync with their own body, with their partner's bodies. I mean, that is mindfulness. So it did, I, I scoured the scientific literature to see someone must have written about mindfulness in sex before. And, um, I couldn't find really anything, uh, nothing in the sort of scientifical, sci scientific empirical literature. Now, it turns out that Masters and Johnson were very much onto this. And when they developed Sensate Focus, which is a very structured touching exercise between couples, that that is a mindfulness exercise. They just didn't use the language of mindfulness itself. But in their instructions for partners, um, you know, one partner touches the other partner while the receiver really tunes in, notices the sensations as they are without changing them, without expectations for arousal or orgasm. That is, that is mindfulness. Um, so going back to the first st pilot study that I led, um, I was, you know, a bit shocked and surprised, delighted, of course, and that then paved the way for um, the next study, which was an attempt to replicate uh, that study that I had done in Seattle. But now that I was in a um, university appointment um, as a faculty member, I replicated the same study in a different group of cancer survivors in Vancouver, Canada, and found the same thing. Wow. I mean, it's it just is it's quite flooring to think that you're doing this research in the early 2000s and nothing has been done. And yet mindfulness mm -hmm. has been around for three, 4,000 years right. as, a, as a religious or secular practice, I suppose, mm -hmm. um, coming from Buddhism and then, and then being brought into the Western world. And it's just, you're right. When you think about it, like, well, why wasn't it? Why wasn't, why didn't we bring these two together? Because clients will say to me when they talk about the kind of sex that they want to have, they, they mm -hmm. want intensity and passion and they yeah. want, be, it, it to be all encompassing and that is being mindful and yes. you know I think that the real 
the real boom around mindfulness in the last I want to say decade, but I actually don't even think it's that long, you know, whether it's been in corporates or in schools, it has been fantastic, but I still don't think we talk enough about mm-hmm. how, how useful it is to practice mindfulness for your sex life. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. Well, that's a big um, statement because it, um, it requires us to talk about the ongoing stigma and discomfort we have in talking about sex in general. So when we look at the very large surveys, we find that most, most people, and there is a sort of a gendered facet to this women being less likely than men, but still most people with sexual concerns will never talk to a healthcare provider will never um, seek help, they'll, they'll go online and, you know, maybe do an internet Google search for for treatments. Um, But there's still so much shame and secrecy and embarrassment around talking about sex that um, it means that we're, you know, we're not having those conversations about what really is at the root of sexual difficulties. So that's in play in the background. And I, I would love to see that change in my academic lifetime, you know, the point at which we can normalize that sexual difficulties are common um, that they're prevalent in the same way that we can talk about headaches being common or diabetes being common or, you know, other health aspects that we have no difficulties or few difficulties talking about. So that's really important. Um, I think the other thing that has been happening in parallel, it has been um, a very biomedical focus uh, over over time, which has had a lot of, I think, very good research emerged from it. I mean, when sildenafil citrate Viagra was approved, it's approved in Canada in 1999. Um, it was a watershed moment for the treatment of erectile dysfunction in individuals. Suddenly, folks had something that was safe and effective and relatively inexpensive, um, had few side effects. Um, and so all of that, it was very, very good for the treatment of erectile dysfunction. But it also narrowed the the research focus on more biomedical approaches um, to other kinds of sexual concerns. I mean, there's been so much research interest and pharmaceutical funding trying to find, you know, the, the, the feed quote fee I'm putting, I'm using big air quotes. Your listeners can't see my big air quotes, but there's massive air quotes around female Viagra, the idea that. Um, the key to sexual desire can be wrapped up in a pill, yeah. right? And it it just doesn't exist. But doesn't there's been exist. so much scientific research and pharmaceutical funding that has sought to, to discover this. And so unfortunately, I think we still um, societally have this very narrow view of, you know, sexuality and sexual function and libido are wrapped up in bio- biomedical mechanisms. And it completely ignores the wealth of scientific data and human experience, which tells us that it's almost irrelevant what's happening biomedically. It's, you know, it's somewhat relevant. It's not totally irrelevant. But it is so much more wrapped up in our sense of self than it oh, is yeah. in physiology and, and nerves. 
Oh, yeah. Could the pharmaceutical companies listening to this just bottle some compassion so that we could all take a dose <laughs> of compassion every day? You would make a lot of money if you did that, FYI. Right, but right. You know what? I, I was approached by a pharmaceutical company in 2012, so we're talking like a decade ago, and they asked me to be on, on a panel of experts to to kind of promote or discuss and, and get engaged with fulbanserin, which is the right. air quote female Viagra. 2012, I was saying this is not going to work. This is just, I'm yeah. sorry, like good luck to yeah. you. Like I, I, I don't yeah. know how I can contribute here because anyway, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that, that you're absolutely right. It's talking about it. That's the problem. And I think that we have, we have come a long way. I mean, platforms like social media platforms like Instagram and YouTube give, give people the ability to access a lot of sex positive information. Whereas, you know, when I was growing up as a teenager, I didn't have that at all. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You know, it was it was what your friends said, what your cousin said, what your friends' friends said, what a mm-hmm. magazine at home looked like, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was really secondhand information. But while I think that there has been a shift in a positive direction, there's still a lot of misinformation out there, and I mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. we speak enough about the the reality of sex. You know, we mm-hmm. we are going to experience sexual difficulties in our lifetime. That is normal, and if we can approach those sexual concerns with compassion, with kindness, with acceptance that this is normal, we actually, mm-hmm. research again, research shows us we have a very different experience. Mm-hmm. For example, if, if couples who have um, sexual di- differences in sexual desire, if they expect and understand it to be normal as a part of mm-hmm. their, their relationship, they are more resilient to the discrepancy right. in desire. There's, there's right. more compassion, there's more acceptance. So right. Uh, th- there's two things I want to want to touch on. The one, uh, let's start with the first one, I guess. The first is, so how do we bring mindfulness into sex? You know, when you're mm-hmm. you've done incredible research, we know it's 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 something we need to be focusing on. We need to be promoting. But how do mm-hmm. how does the everyday person bring this into their experience to get mm-hmm. the kind of sex they want to have? Yeah. So I'll I'll start out with my kind of idealistic view, and that is. We all should be, and I say should carefully, uh, because should (laughs) implies a judgment. We all could benefit from mindfulness in our lives in general. And we see this in some jurisdictions where mindfulness is actually taught in the elementary education curriculum, where I live, which is just outside of Vancouver in Canada. Um, It's a standard part of um, uh, kind of the day's training for eight-year-olds. Um, so second grade students are part of a program called Mind Up, where they do 10 minutes of mindfulness first when they walk in the door at school and then 10 minutes again before they leave home. And it's at, and it is about, um, you know, trying to really enforce that this is a good thing for us to be doing in our life in general. So stemming from that, again, my idealistic view is that this is something that we, we would all do. This would be a normal part of um, coping and existing, that we would have those skills in, in mindfulness and have an understanding of where they might be um, used, you know, to benefit our lives and, um, and some practice to some degree. That's idealistic. I think the more realistic view is um, first and foremost, and we've, we've certainly done a lot of knowledge translation research campaigns where we've tried to get this message out to broad audiences, which is mindfulness is something that you can learn specifically to use in sexual encounters. So um, 
in order to cut, sort of enforce that view, we share a little bit of the science. Um, and for any listener who's interested, you know, they can pretty easily find the scientific literature that has evaluated mindfulness in different populations of men and women, etc. Um, but the basic message is that mindfulness is an impactful tool for cultivating sexual desire and arousal and satisfaction and decreasing sexual distress and helping folks manage chronic genital pain. So the science is pretty compelling. I think 10 years ago, you know, I've been doing this research for, for 20 years, 10 years ago, I, I would not have been able to make that definitive of a statement today in 2021. I can say that pretty confidently that the data are very compelling. And it's not just our research team at, at University of British Columbia. It's now been taken up and studied by multiple groups around the world in different cultures and different settings. So it is very, very compelling. So um, how do you actually do this? Here's where there's different ways of doing this. So, so you can adopt a mindfulness practice in your life. You can download uh, certain apps that deliver mindfulness in general to you on a daily basis or sort of on demand. Um, you can also uh, join online groups. And there are many, many online groups that you that are welcoming of people who want to kind of drop in and participate in an online space of practicing mindfulness. Um, and then I think with some of that, that um, skill developed in your life in general, you can just start to think about how might I integrate this into my sexuality. So I often advocate that people try this on their own first. So through self-touch um, is really tuning in to the bare sensations. What does this feel like when I use my own hand to touch my body in general and gradually the more erotic parts of my own body? And it's not about thinking about those areas, but rather it's about tuning into the bare sensations in those areas. So vibration, temperature, texture. Um, can you draw a circle around the, the, the actual location of where those sensations are? So um, uh, doing this on your own, and I will often say to people, elicit a little bit of arousal while you're doing this, but don't go all the way through to orgasm because then it becomes a performance demand kind of a situation. So maybe set a timer for five minutes where for five minutes you'll engage in this self-touch of exploration with the goal of bringing mindfulness into that self-touch. And then depending on how that goes for the person, they may, may want to repeat that many, many times, especially if they notice a lot of mind wandering or a lot of judgments coming up. And um, some, some folks do even struggle with the idea of self-touch, finding it inappropriate, or there might be messages from their childhood that self-touch is bad and dirty. And so some of that has to be worked through, through this exercise. And then gradually over time, if they are in a relationship with a person or multiple people, they can start to integrate those same skills of paying attention into partnered activities. And it doesn't have to just be through sensations of touch. It can be through sound, pay attention to the sounds of sexual activity or the smells of sexual activity, um, or, um, you know, the taste in your mouth of sexual activity. So really integrating all of the senses to, to make it a very um, uh, aware ac activity. It's, it's really important, I think, for, for people who are listening to 
for me to emphasize the point that we we could practice on our own and outside of performance-based sexual experiences such as self-pleasure and partner sex in order to then bring that in with a partner and to experience a heightened sense of pleasure in what we're we're doing and so much of what you're speaking to is about really slowing things down really focusing Mm -hmm. on the journey and not the destination which is so much about what sex therapy is about anyway Mm -hmm. and the the real benefit of bringing mindfulness as a practice into your experience of sex could be felt elsewhere not just Mm -hmm. in your in your experience of pleasure but then it does make me think that my second question and lead quite nicely onto it what's been really interesting and I've had this happen throughout my career when I've been speaking to clients about mindfulness because I you know it's one of the um, approaches that I use in in my practice very often when I speak to, to people about mindfulness, very often this is from women, they seem to get confused between compassion and complacency. So mm. when I talk about being compassionate to yourself, you know, and, and I'll always start practicing mindfulness outside of anything to do with sex first and foremost, yeah. and then we gently bring it in. When I talk about being compassionate to yourself, I've had a lot of clients, again, particularly women, kind of alert me to their discomfort in it and saying, I don't know how uncomfortable I am with that. Because if I if I'm compassionate towards myself, well, then I'm just going to binge on chocolate cookies or I'm not going to exercise. So I could just be kind to myself and say, you don't have to exercise today constantly. Can we just delve into that for a few moments? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also... Um... Uh, encounter that often when it comes to, again, women in particular who talk about low desire. And we talk about normalizing the fact that it's okay to go into a sexual encounter without desire. Um, Because, you know, that is normal. That is a common experience for many, many individuals, particularly those in longer term relationships. Um, But then once in the encounter, uh, really, Um, having an openness to becoming sexually aroused and then experiencing desire. And, uh, and similarly, I've had many, many clients over the years who will say, yeah, but isn't that sort of a a kind of, you know, um, sexual compliance where, and and doesn't that sort of border on non-consensual sexual activity, because I'm going into an encounter that I have no desire for. um, And you're suggesting do it anyways, but have an openness. So it does create some tension um, because uh, that's not at all what we're what we're suggesting. First and foremost, consent is essential, definitely in new relationships and absolutely in established relationships where maybe um, we don't even use that language of consent anymore because there's just an assumption that you know this is kind of expected in the relationship. But, but the conversation of consent is, um, is so, so important in all relationships and in all settings. So we're not at all suggesting uh, just say yes, right? The, that's, that's, that's not at all uh, what it is. But in the spirit of being kind and compassionate to yourself, does that mean that you might be able to consider what's in it for you? What are some good reasons for you to engage in this sexual activity, even if you're not feeling desire at the outset? So maybe it's an opportunity for you to feel powerful and in control and sexy um, and emotionally connected 
and maybe going into the encounter, you know that there is arousal on the other side of it and, and an orgasm potentially on the other side of it, if that's important to you. So this is really where compassion comes in is being able to set aside a lot of the jet, the judgments and storylines and having an open and having an openness to what might be there. And if we just really pay attention, maybe we can tune into what might be, uh, might be there for that, for us on the other side. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's not a black or white conversation. Uh, and I'm really glad that you raised it. And I would, I think it's just important to, um, for a provider and a, and a person um, to have that conversation. How does that show up for you? So when you talk about being compassionate to yourself, how does that show up? So the example of, you know, being kind to myself means being okay with indulging in a way. Well, is that really what it is? Or is there some harm in that for you? Is it a form of um, self-soothing as a way of dealing with difficult emotions, right? So eating for the sake of pleasure, absolutely. I fully, fully endorse it. Whereas eating um, as a form of self-soothing to manage, say, anxiety or other emotions is really quite different. And, and um, mindfulness and self-compassion can be a tool to discern the underlying motives behind those two behaviors that look very, very similar on, on a surface level. So um, yeah, tricky question, Katrina, and I, I don't have a good answer for it other than uh, invite the listener to maybe experiment with what would bring in compassion to this situation? What would it allow me to see that I wouldn't normally see when I'm kind of laden down and weighted down with self-judgment? You, you spoke so clearly, though, in, in your answer about a couple of things. The one is the, you know, being curious about your motivations particularly around sex. And we know that our motivation and, and why we want to have sex is going to change different day, different time, different week, different yeah. year. And then you also, you're touching on, on pleasure and allowing ourselves pleasure. And I think often when I say pleasure, everyone just automatically thinks sex, but we get pleasure from eating a chocolate bar. We get pleasure from sometimes a glass of wine or whatever your pleasure is and allowing ourselves to experience pleasure and the motivation behind why, as you said, whether that's a soothing action, which we need to explore and understand, or whether it's because, hell, I felt like I deserved a bit of pleasure. Right. You know, like yeah. I really feel like I deserve a glass of wine this evening after a long, right. a long day and our, our recent COVID restrictions. So I, I, I think you really helped frame that for the listener in that mm -hmm. be curious in a mindful way be curious about what it is that's going on for you and why it is that perhaps you're 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 thinking that that could be complacent mm -hmm. versus being compassionate so laurie if i suppose i want to know very briefly are you working on anything researching anything really incredible at the moment mm -hmm. Yeah, um, a couple of things. First is I'm in the final stages of working on um, the, the treatment manual or the guide to my book. So in Better Sex Through Mindfulness, um, it, it describes, um, I mean, I, I think of it as a translation of the science and it attempts to make the case for mindful sex. 
Um, and now what I'm doing is um, actually taking the treatment manuals that we've developed over many, many years and used with hundreds and hundreds of individuals and writing a guide for it. So it's in the final stages. It, it'll get submitted uh, within the next month and it should be available by um, the spring of 2022. There's kind of a long gestational period of production and marketing and all that sort of thing. So that's really exciting because then it means that um, folks who say, all right, I believe you, I believe that mindfulness is helpful for sex. How do I actually do this now? Um, and so that that will be available, which I'm really excited about. Um, the other thing I'm really, really excited about is over the last three years, we've been adapting our face-to-face -face mindful sex groups for online administration. And so we've been working with graphic illustrators and web developers and patient groups um, to um, uh, adapt the materials for online delivery and then to see, is it feasible? So if, can, can this actually be delivered in an online format? And so we've done three studies to find that it actually is feasible that um, individuals with sexual concerns um, are able to interact with the materials. They find the online videos and the online audio guides to be useful and delivered in an accessible way. And we're now moving into the stage of what we call empirical testing, which is um, number one, does it work? And number two, how does it compare to when we run these groups face to face? So that's literally what we're working on right now. We've, we're bringing a new postdoctoral fellow onto the onto the team, Liz Mahar. She's joining us in August next month, um, and will uh, really lead this this work. And this is in collaboration with uh, my colleague, Dr. Kyle will, um, Kyle Stevenson, who's at Xavier University in the USA. So really excited because if we find that it that it is effective then it really helps with the access issue, right? Those folks that we talked about earlier who have so much shame and embarrassment, um, even reaching out to a healthcare provider, um, they'll be able to do this in the privacy of their own home. So firstly, please sign me up for your treatment manual immediately. I want like <laughs> first copy, please sign me a copy too. I, I'm I will so do. excited. I'm so excited yeah. for that. That's so, that really is a dream of mine and 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 you're living that dream it's incredible and then secondly wow I mean three years ago you started this project and we've gone online in the last 18 months because we've had to and how wonderful that really the 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 forecast for it is to make it more and more accessible to people because that's what we want we want to dismantle the shame to take yeah. away that embarrassment that people feel to really get people experiencing sex in a different way and mm -hmm. and doing that through mindfulness is I think holistically for one's well-being mm -hmm. just such a, a, mm -hmm. a good way to do that I guess then thank you my mm -hmm. final yeah I'm so excited I can't wait to, to <laughs> and see what you're doing and how how this kind of progresses so if you were only able to to say one thing about mindfulness for the rest of your life <laughs> to anyone who would listen, what would what would be that one thing you'd want people to know about mindfulness and sex? Yeah, well, I've already said that it works, yeah. so I'm not going to use that as my <laughs> as my concluding statement. <laughs> it's got to be something else, um, yeah. and and that is that it's in your back pocket. Yeah. It is something that each of us um, were born with an innate ability 
to pay attention non-judgmentally. Mm-hmm. And so even when we think back to our younger versions of ourselves, that child, before we were infused with the messages of the world and our upbringing and our education, we were mindful children, mindful babies. So it is an innate ability in all of us. And so I'll often say it's in our back pocket, but we need to take that hand in the back pocket and, and, you know, reach for it and, and bring it out. So each of us do have that capacity for present non-judgmental awareness. So um, that combined with the other earlier statement that I'll sneak in and get a second statement, which is that it works. <laughs> Lori, thank you for joining me. It's just been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would rate and review it. This episode was sponsored by Desir. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code FOREFRIEND. 